0: We are in the third part of our series on the book of Esther called A Kingdom Without God. The first week we talked about how kingdoms without God are not all good and not all bad. They can have deep flaws and great benefits. Now, Christian kind of live Two lives at the same time. We are citizens in God's kingdom, but we also live in the kingdoms of this world. And that means wherever Christians live, we live in a kind of exile. We're not fully at home in the world. We're called to be different than our surrounding cultures in some way. And that doesn't matter if you live in the USA, if you live in South Africa or Russia or China or North Africa, wherever you live, you will be different if you're being faithful to Christ because he requires us to pick up our cross and follow him. That means in some way we will be swimming upstream against cultural currents. And that's why we continue to ask the same question. When we are in exile, What is God up to? What is He doing? How can we live faithfully to Him and join God in what God is doing wherever we are? And as we've noticed in the book of Esther, life in exile is very complicated and needs a lot of nuance, and it is full of gray areas. And one gray area arises in the story we heard today. Mordecai, a Jew, works in the courts of a Persian kingdom and there is an obligation for all of the court servants at the command of the king to bow down and honor a man named Haman. He is higher up on the food chain and so everybody else must pay him high esteem. But we are told in the second verse of chapter 3 that Mordecai would not kneel down, or pay him honor. We are not told why. Maybe it's the case that Mordecai took this to be an act of undue honor, which he thought was some sort of betrayal of his allegiance to God. Perhaps he knows that Haman is a social climber and a power-hungry crook, so he won't kneel for such a dishonorable man. Maybe Mordecai would kneel to someone in greater authority, but He just doesn't like Haman. The author doesn't tell us. All we know is that Mordecai is willing to disobey the command of the king over this issue. And every other servant around Mordecai is pressuring him to do this, but he won't. So what do they do? They rat him out to Haman. Now, remember, this is how a kingdom without God operates. With suspicion and distrust, and betrayal. Then we read, after they rat Mordecai out, we read Haman's response to Mordecai's so-called disrespect. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, when I read those two verses this week, I cannot think of more pertinent Bible verses for our culture today because we are seeing all of the layers of evil that can pile up in a kingdom without God. If we care to look at this story, We will see evil in all of its manifestations. First, we see individual hate rooted in a bad experience between two men. We see a man named Haman who loves attention and favor more than anything else. And when one other man refuses to give him this honor, he doesn't brush it off. He doesn't think, at least I have the king's favor. He hates Mordecai. It is too much to handle one non-conforming individual, and he doesn't just hate him in his heart. He plots his murder. He needs to bring an end to the lone Jew who will not bow down before him like a God among mortals. But the evil doesn't stop there. We don't see just individual hate. We see generalized prejudice. Haman doesn't stop with hating Mordecai. He hates all Jews because of his hatred for one Jew. And if you don't get chills when you read this verse, you're not understanding it. Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. He hated the thought of just getting vengeance upon the one man who shattered his fragile ego. He has to kill more. He has to scapegoat the entire tribe to which Mordecai belongs. He doesn't just hate the one man. He now has prejudice against his people. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you know the evil doesn't stop there. There's another layer of evil here because there is is pre-existing history between the people of Haman and the people of Mordecai. We're told by the author of this book that Mordecai comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and that is not a random detail. The tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first ruler named King Saul. And King Saul had enemies named the Amalekites, who hated and persecuted the Israelites. In one battle in particular, God tells Saul that he's going to punish the Amalekites, and he commands Saul to totally destroy them. Saul disobeys that command and takes a bunch of the property— He plunders the nation of the Amalekites for its goods, and then Saul takes captive the Amalekite king who is named Agag. We are told in the story of Esther, centuries and centuries later, that Haman is an Agagite. In other words, Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites who hates the Israelites, and Mordecai is a descendant of the Israelites who were persecuted by the Amalekites. The conflict between two of their ancestors is now replaying itself out between these two men. They have a bitter history, they have been in fights before. This conflict is not new, it's not just personal. It's historical. And so guess what Haman is thinking with his plan? He is not just taking out his anger on a group. He's trying to get vengeance. He thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to destroy all of the Israelites, just like they tried to destroy my people. I will destroy them. And so he gets out lots, which was an ancient version of drawing straws. And he casts these lots. He wants to decide when will his order to kill all the Jews take place. And he decides that he wants the Jews to die approximately one year later. Now look, if Haman was a nobody with no influence and no power, the story might end here. Might not have as big of an impact Maybe he would have just killed Mordecai alone, but with his power and with his position and with his influence, he does more, much more because he has the ear of the most powerful man in Persia. And so he gets the king's audience and he tells the king his idea. And you need to listen to all of the vague and dehumanizing language he uses about the Jews. He says, King Xerxes, there is a certain kind of people who keep themselves separate, who have different customs than us, and who disobey the king. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Then Haman says, you need to issue a decree to destroy the Jews. And so Haman mentions on a totally unrelated note, by the way, I'm thinking about making a massive donation to the king. This is a not so subtle bribe to do Haman's bidding. And so we're told in verse 13 that the the king agrees to this decision, and so dispatches were sent by couriers to all the providences, provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. If it wasn't clear, no one's making it out alive. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month the month of Adar and to plunder their goods you see that last detail you see what Haman is doing Saul plundered the Amalekites my people so now Haman thinks well I'm going to kill all the Jews and I'm going to take their stuff the sins of Saul are now being avenged by a man in power centuries later now I said that I find this chapter very pertinent to our situation and in our church today. And I say that because I think the Bible has the greatest understanding of how evil actually works. And the basic idea is that evil works at different levels. Evil has layers that pile on top of each other. The Bible shows a spiritual layer of evil often using words and terms like Satan and demons. The Bible shows a historical layer of evil. We hear about sons and daughters following after the ways of their fathers. The Bible shows an institutional layer of evil, what John's gospel might call the world or what Paul refers to as rulers and principalities and powers. These are structures and systems of power that perpetuate injustice. Recall the fact that in the book of Exodus, one man, Pharaoh, hates the Jews. But it is his Egyptian policy to call all baby Jewish boys to death. That's not just an individual hating the Jews, that is a system of power against them. The Bible also shows an individual layer of evil that each one of us, without exception, has a crooked and bent heart, that there is no, no one without selfish desires and destructive habits. All of these layers of evil pile on top of each other, and we just can't, by our own effort, get out under the weight of evil. And this means, That layers of evil plague every kingdom of the world, including our country. Like I said two weeks ago, Christians can love their country, but they cannot love their country more than Christ. So let's talk about one evil in our country in particular, the evil of racism. First of all, racism works at an individual level. In 2017, a man named James Alexfield Jr. deliberately drove his car into a crowd of people in Charlottesville, Virginia. He killed a woman named Heather Heyer and injured 28 other protesters. We can say without any hesitation at all that this evil of racism takes form in the hearts and minds and actions of individuals who hate other individuals, but, He wasn't there for no reason in particular. He was there because of a Unite the Right rally. At that rally, men were holding flags with Nazi swastikas. And a protest formed against that rally. So James Fields decided to drive his car into that protest. He didn't just hate an individual... He is part of a group which hates the group of black Americans. And as much as we would like to think that these groups do not exist, they do. White supremacist groups are alive and well in our country today. They believe and espouse and behave on the principle that people of European origin, European civilization, and light skin are inherently superior to all other nationalities, civilizations, and skin colors. They are a group of hate, and they have hate for other groups. They have a generalized prejudice. But if you know the history of our country, you know the evil doesn't stop there. You know that there is pre-existing history between white and black Americans, people of European descent and people of african descent in 1441 portuguese christians sailed to west africa and acquired the very first african slave who were who who were sold at the first slave auction three years later and for the next four centuries the world saw perhaps the largest operation of forced migration kidnapping and genocide in human history the transatlantic slave trade and the Middle Passage combined theft, torture, murder, deportation, family separation, and enslavement of millions of Africans and their descendants. 424 years after those first West African slaves were captured by Europeans, the 13th Amendment in the United States was passed. But that does not mean just because of the abolition of slavery that racism came to an end. Because after the abolition of slavery, a series of Jim Crow laws and Supreme Court cases and terrorism by the KKK made life a living nightmare for free black Americans in the South. 100 years after that, a series of civil rights acts were passed in the 1960s. That's still did not mark the end of all racism. So the question is, after that brief history, do we think that a mere six decades after the 1960s, that we can simply undo all of the historical wrongs done to black men, women, and children for centuries? Now, I know that the analogy between Haman and Mordecai is an imperfect comparison to what we're dealing with in the U.S. But we can glean at least one truth from their story. Time does not heal all wounds. We cannot just assume that historical wrongs in the past will simply fade away over the years. The oppressed... Remember what is done to them and their ancestors, and they will cry out to a God who listens and will liberate. Now we know that evil doesn't just stop there. Racism can also work at an institutional level, and I want to be as clear as possible with a term like institutional racism. I do not believe that it is always obvious or clear. Now, some institutional racism is obvious. Black slaves were by law counted as three-fifths of a person, which is an obvious and overt diminishment of the worth of people made in the image of God. But other, other racism is very subtle, just like many of our sins are subtle. It is true in America today that African-Americans are more likely than white Americans to be arrested. And once they are arrested, they are more likely to be convicted. And once convicted, they are more likely to experience lengthy prison sentences. Now, there is no law on the books that tells judges, if someone is black, be harsher with them. But even though We can believe that many or most judges intend to be fair. We can see injustice in the treatment of black Americans. That is the whole point of institutional racism. If an institution is failing a people group because of their skin color, we have to ask why are these inconsistencies happening, especially when they are unintentional? A law in America might not be as clear as Haman's edict to destroy the Jews, but a law in America may still be dangerous and destructive to black Americans. That's what institutional racism is all about. But there's a fifth layer of evil that we haven't talked about yet. The fact that racism works at a spiritual Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, was interviewed by a Catholic priest named Father Brian Massingale. Alexander makes the argument in her book that after the civil rights movement, the black community was crippled and unjustly discriminated against by our justice system. And she has worked for years against the unjust mass incarceration of black Americans. But this priest had an interview with Alexander. And he found out that even though she is a lawyer by profession and training, she left her, her law practice to teach in a seminary. The priest asked why she would leave this very prestigious occupation to pursue religion and faith. And she responded that she came to realize that while legal strategies and policy changes are essential tools, they are insufficient for dealing with the scourge of racism. She said, the problems facing our nation can only be resolved by going where the law and social analysis cannot take us. In other words, racism goes deeper than just politics and deeper than just economics and deeper than our society. Racism is a spiritual wound, a spiritual evil, and a spiritual cancer. Spiritual evils cannot be solved by all of the right policy decisions. And that's why this sermon is all about where we put our hope. We cannot put hope in merely worldly solutions. We have worldly problems, and one of them in our country is racism, and it works at many different levels. And as Jeremiah the prophet says, we should seek the welfare, the flourishing of our city and our nation and our world. We need to seek economic responses to poverty and political and social responses to the evil of racism, but we cannot put our hope in merely worldly solutions. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is a man who told the the political official who killed him without cause, my kingdom is not of this world. We must put our hope in him. Christians have long prayed a prayer. It's just one word long, Maranatha. It means come Lord. It is asking our Lord Jesus Christ to come back to us. We have always prayed for him to come back. And one of the reasons why we've prayed for that is because we do not believe evil will come to an end until Christ returns. Mere human effort will not end evil in our midst, mere human effort will not end racism in our midst. If we could have solved all of our problems, Jesus would not have had to come the first time around. So because we can't solve all our problems, Jesus will have to come back a second time. He is our only hope. We put our hope in him because he came before and he will come again and he will end every single kind of evil. That's why we don't put our hope in mere worldly solutions. We put our hope in Christ, who will come again. And that's why we pray. Maranatha.